Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Latura Dhamma Ki Jai, Nabhadweet Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Ganga Maya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tosi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Namaste Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pachani Nivasesasanivani Paskajade Satani. Monday Ham Sri Guru Sri Uta Parakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamstra. Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Ravanatam Vitams Tam Sajiva Sarvaitam Sarvaditam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devan Shri Radha Krishna Padma Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Vitams Chat. Which one are we, are we on this verse or this verse? This one? Mm-hmm. Om Nimo Bhagavateva Sudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's February 12th, 2012 in a And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Chapter 12, Rahugana Converses with Jedabharata, Text 9. Evam niruktam shiti shabdavritam asaniranat paramanavoye avidjaya manasa kalpitaste yesham samudena kritovishesha. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. One may say that varieties arise from the planet Earth itself. However, although the universe may temporarily appear to be the truth, it ultimately has no real existence. The earth was originally created by a combination of atomic particles, but these particles are impermanent. Actually, the atom is not the cause of the universe, although some philosophers think so. It is not a fact that the varieties found in this material world simply result from atomic juxtaposition or combination. Purport, those who follow the atomic theory think that the protons and electrons of atoms combine in such a way as to bring all material existence into being. However, the scientists fail to discover the cause of atomic existence itself. Under these circumstances, we cannot accept that the atom is the cause of the universe. Such theories are advanced by unintelligent people. According to real intelligence, the real cause of the cosmic manifestation is the Supreme Lord. Janma Dhyasya Yataha. He is the original cause of all creation. As stated in the Bhagavad Gita 10.8, Aham Sarvasya Prabhavo Matta Sarvam Pravartate. Krishna is the original cause. Sarva Karana Karanam. He is the cause of all causes. Krishna is the cause of atoms, the material energy. Bhumir Apanalo Vayu, Kamano Buddha Evacha, Ahankara Itiyame, Bina Prakritir Astada. The ultimate cause is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and only those in ignorance try to find out other causes by posing different theories. Evam niruptam shiti shabdam vrittam asandhita nat paramanabhoye 
avidjaya manasa kalpitaste yesham samuhena krito visheshaha. One may say that varieties arise from the planet Earth itself. However, although the universe may temporarily appear to be the truth, it ultimately has no real existence. The Earth was originally created by a combination of atomic particles, but these particles are impermanent. Actually, the atom is not the cause of the universe, although some philosophers think so. It is not a fact that the varieties found in this material world simply result from atomic juxtaposition or combination. So on one level, it appears that material varieties have their basis just in material things. When I was teaching in a government school, I had to give a class on mathematics, and I was explaining to the children how you can't add things that have different denominators, like you can't add one-half and two-fourths. You have to make them both fourths. You remember that from mathematics? So we were talking about how you can't add unlike things. You can't add cars and buses. You have to find something common. You have to say they're both vehicles. You can't add tape. You can't say we have three tables and four chairs. How many do we have? You'd have to say how many pieces of furniture. So we were discussing with the children about how to find commonality. And then I was trying to think. Actually, they asked me. They said, are there any two things that don't have anything in common? Well, you can't find a commonality to add them. And without thinking too much, because in a government school in America, you cannot discuss religion. So just sort of naturally, I said, yes, you can't add cars and people because one is a living being and one is a thing. And the children said, no, they're both things. I said, how are they both things? They replied, they're both made of atoms. So then I was a little stuck. And I ended up very carefully talking about the difference between matter and life. And I could see that these kids, these were in the gifted and talented class, and they were all about 12 years old, that never in their life before had they ever heard of anything beyond the atom. They, they were bewildered. And I was, I was just a teacher in that school. I was the assistant principal. So I was a big authority in the school, and they figured that I knew what I was talking about. They, they accepted that what I said was true. But they had a very difficult time even thinking about it. Could there be something beyond the atom? And so here, Jed Bharata is telling Rahugana that the, the matter is not everything. I mean, from one perspective, we can say how everything in this world of names is just simply a combination of atoms in different forms. So when atoms combine in one way, they make gold, and when they combine in another way, they make oxygen. It's really just the same three things, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Or just like we can say, it's just the modes of material nature, it's just goodness, passion, and ignorance. I don't know if those correlate to protons, neutrons, and electrons, but just somehow the three modes of nature are like three different colors of lights going on a movie screen. And just from those three colors of lights, everything is, is there. All of the action of the movie is there. So in the same way in this world, from the three modes of nature or from the constituents of an atom, everything is there. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, if you're a cook, if you just have three ingredients, let's say you just have flour, water, and salt. So you can make a lot of things from flour, water, and salt. But not nearly as many things as Krishna makes out of protons, neutrons, and electrons. I mean, how is it that he can combine them into things that are so radically different from one another? 
And then when he recombines the atoms again, it's different. Like how is it that hydrogen and oxygen, which are, exist naturally in a gaseous state, that when you combine them, they become liquid? How does he do that? You know, it's pretty amazing. And it's just really, it, you know, those are, okay, combinations of two different atoms to form a molecule, but it's still just the same basic ingredients. I'm taking protons, neutrons, and electrons, and by varying the number of those, I end up with things that have extremely different properties. And then by putting those together, I have things that have also very different properties, and they have very different properties from the things that made them up. From their, We call this synergy, where what you create has something more than the original ingredients. So how does he do that? How, how does he take basic things, put them together, and come up with something that has radically different properties from any of the things he used to make it with? And, and all this variety is caused by that. Now, during the creation, we don't generally see atoms breaking apart. So whatever is the basic elements of an atom, like gold stays gold. But at the end of the creation, all those things break apart. Presumably, even the atoms break apart. You can no longer distinguish goodness, passion, ignorance. There's just the pradhan, just the, the aggregate. And then again, when there's creation, then the Lord brings everything together into all the different forms. So, therefore, we can see that everything, even the universe itself, has no permanent existence as that thing. So you know that this table has, is a table, but it's not permanently a table. A little while ago, it was a tree. And before it was a tree, it was earth and water and sunlight. You know, and then before it was earth, it was the body of maybe a beetle. You know, it was something else. And it won't be a table forever. Maybe it will be burned. And if it's burned, then it will produce water vapor and minerals and fire. It'll go back right, from the fire, from the fire of the sun, the water, and the earth minerals. Again, it will produce water, fire, and minerals, and then again come into something else, just like our own bodies, you know, our fingernails. So yesterday our fingernail was a japati, right, and eventually we cut off the fingernail and it turns into earth. So therefore it's the world of names. Things are, if, if things are constantly changing, what they are, you know, we're thinking, okay, I am a this, and I have this relationship, and this is a that, and this is over here, and this is over, we're using this for that. But actually, it's just happening in a flash. Uh, Burj Abu said he calculated that one of our lifetimes is eight billionths of a second for Lord Brahma. So that's a whole lifetime. Just think how fast things are actually changing. So in just fractions, in just billionths of a second, everything's changing their form. If we could see some sort of time-lapse photography of the universe we would see everything shape-shifting, you know, this turning into this, and then this turning into this, and this turning into this, and then finally becoming the aggregate. Something like a piece of clay that you form into something, and then you smash it into clay, and you form it into something else, and you smash it into something else. So that's one of the points that's being made here, how that it's a world of names, and these things are all temporary. They're not actually what they appear to be. That's part of the nature, not all of the nature, but part of the nature of maya. That it's not what it appears to be. It's something else. But one may think, therefore, another aspect of maya is thinking that the basic constituent blocks that constantly change their forms in this world, that that's the ultimate reality. 
because that's all we can perceive with our gross senses and mind. We really can't perceive anything else beyond that. So one might assume, logically, just by using projection anuman, that the atoms are the source, are the cause of everything. Because we don't see anything finer than that. We see the little pieces of the atoms, and now they're saying there's quarks and this and that in the atoms. But we don't see anything beyond that. Of course, it's quite interesting that in the atom is such a great force that it can blow up a city. You know, how is that? How is it but that by as soon as you break apart an atom, that there's such an energy in there that an entire city is burned up and there's and the whole area is polluted with radiation for decades just from, you know, splitting an atom. So where what is that energy? Where is that coming from? I mean they really don't know. And anyway, if you're going to look at this world and all the variety here, as temporary as it is and as illusory as it is, it's amazing. I mean, it's completely amazing. So some movie may be a temporary illusion, but we don't say there's no director, we don't say there's no producer, we don't say there's no actors. Now, they're getting more and more sophisticated with their movies, 3D, and maybe someday, I heard that some movies they put a a base box under the seat, so when there's like a train in the movie, your seat vibrates. <laughs> Maybe someday they'll put out smells, you know, the guy in the movie smells a rose, and they'll put rose fragrance into the theater. But as these movies become very complex, even the very simple ones, even the old silent movies in 1920, who would say that there was not a director? Who would say that there's not an engineer, that there's not an ultimate cause? You know, people want to say that those of us who believe that God is a person and who believe in the demigods and that there's persons running the show, that we're childish, that we're primitive. They say, oh, primitive people, they didn't understand about Adam, so they had to talk about gods. And we say, no, it's only primitive people who would think that movies can happen without a director, that a table can exist without a carpenter. I mean, this is a pretty simple table. It's not very complicated. Or even those cushions, which are even simpler. But nobody would suggest that those cushions came into being on their own. Or even that they were created by a two-year-old child. Or that they were created by a chimpanzee. They had to be created, I'd say you'd have to be at least probably eight or nine-year-old human to create something like that cushion. So we understand for something very simple there must be intelligence. This is the sign of advanced knowledge. It's not the sign of being primitive. And it's only propaganda that the scientists are saying today. No, it's just the atom. And anyone who thinks there's anything beyond the atom, they're just like some sort of a tribal. <laughs> you know? And we'll, we'll, tolerate, we'll tolerate the religious people because we want to tolerate all different points of view in our postmodernistic culture of, you know, every culture and every point of view has its value. And I'm sure there's some value to old sentimental ideas of religion, but really intelligent people don't don't go with that. You know, you can keep your little culture. <laughs> of course, at the same time that the leaders of the global secular culture are teaching like that, more and more people are becoming religious. More and more people are saying, this doesn't this doesn't make sense. This can't be all there is. It can't be just a bunch of atoms. And they're taking up different religious systems, maybe more or less bona fide religious systems or more or less fanatic religious systems, but still, human beings are not really able to be satisfied with this idea. I mean, where do my feelings come from? 
Where do emotions come from if we're just atoms? I mean, where does even the mind come from? Where does even logic come from if all there is is atoms? You know, this table is atoms. It has no mind. It can't think. Even if you could simulate thinking in a computer, how can it feel? A computer never gets angry. A computer doesn't feel pain. You know, if your part of your computer breaks, the computer doesn't say, oh, this is terrible. I can't do what I want to do anymore. You know, it doesn't care. And if you turn your computer off, it doesn't say, no, don't turn me off. Leave me on. You know? If you exchange your computer for a new model, it doesn't say, you don't love me anymore. Why are you going to somebody else? You know, it's, it's absurd. So those who are intelligent can understand. But it's, it's interesting that for many of us, until meeting Srila Prabhupada through his books, or directly, or through his devotees, we didn't think about these sort of things, or we didn't understand them, even though it doesn't take much intelligence. It really doesn't. It doesn't take much intelligence to say, I've got to be something other than matter. It just takes a slight bit of thoughtfulness. But how many of us, before contacting Krishna consciousness, even had that much insight that I must be something besides the body, just like for those children in the school? It was a revolutionary idea. It, was, it shook their whole foundations. Of, of who they were and what is reality. They really disturbed them. They didn't know what to do with it. So this is the situation we are in today, that even this basic understanding that I am something beyond matter, that this temporary changing world has some ultimate reality, and that ultimate reality is Krishna. That this, because of so much atheistic propaganda, people are not, they can't break their paradigm to even understand it. And therefore, you know, I was thinking about maintaining this center here in Munich and how difficult it must be. There's only a handful of people that live here. Everything's so clean. And everyone who stays here must work very, very, very hard to keep this place nice. And just amazing how hard this small number of people must work. So I was thinking, why do we do this? Why do we maintain this place in the middle of a city? You know, why bother? We're doing it for preaching. We're not doing it for ourselves. This is the... This is what what Srila Prabhupada asked of us. He has, I've given you this knowledge, go and give it to others. Just like Jed Bard here, as soon as he sees... He hadn't talked to anyone in his whole life, not even his parents. But as soon as he sees a worthy person, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur says that Bharajra was a jnani, and he was in the mode of sattva-gun. And therefore, Jed Bard, when he met him, decided that he was going to instruct him in both jnan and in bhakti. So this verse is particularly jnan. What is reality? We have that what we see as reality is not what we think it is. A is always changing. There's no, there isn't, a, the things are not what they appear to be. In the spiritual world, a chair is a chair. You know, a tree is a tree. But here it's not like that. And then the other aspect of ultimate reality is that behind this changing phantasmagoria, there's people. There's us, the soul, and ultimately there's the supreme soul, there's God. And unless one knows that, unless one has this sambandha, unless one has this basic understanding, who am I, what is my relationship with God, what is my relationship with the world, one cannot act so as to be happy. If we think things are different than they are, if we're acting with things in a way that they're not, then how can you achieve anything? Does that make sense? 
If I think something is different from what it is, I'll use it wrongly. If I think I'm something that I'm not, I'll behave wrongly. If I think that the table is a chair, I'll sit on it and I may fall. So one has to, in order to know how to act, one has to know what one is and what things are. So I'd be interested in your realizations on this verse and purple. <laughs> also, the, the previous verse often uh, Jadabharat is speaking about that everything is earth mm. and that, that all the material elements. And I'm always thinking when we hear morning lecture of how can I, what can I take with me for the day? Mm. And when we are in such a section that are very uh, organic or very, very much into those. those It's difficult for me to really get an uh, inspiring point to, to carry with me. Mm. Like we hear very much like the difference between matter and spirit and also like a little bit in contrast with people who are atheistic and maybe how to defeat them and mm. how to have good arguments. But how, how can, can this knowledge be relevant today for me? Okay, well, several things. First of all, you can meditate on why you're taking so much austerity to stay in the center. Mm -hmm. You're doing this, you know, because it's difficult. It's not easy. So why are we doing this? Why are we taking so much trouble today? We're going to have a Sunday program. Because we can see that people, if they think that all there is is atoms, they can't behave properly. and They're going to be suffering. So we can meditate on, on with compassion. And I think with some righteous anger, towards the people who are making this propaganda and ruining human society. And focus, become inspired to do something today to help people see the truth. And this is a good day. As it's Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to care. I mean, after all, we have our own, we've gotten our own spiritual knowledge. Why not just go off someplace and chant Hare Krishna? It's, it's difficult to preach. It's hard. It's... You know, I was thinking that riding on the trains yesterday. Trains, four trains, and, you know, one train got delayed, another train got delayed, and the announcements are only in German. So they say in German, this train is going to be late and you'll miss your connections, but I don't understand what they're saying. You know, and waiting on the cold platform, it's now like negative 20 Celsius, negative 6 Fahrenheit, you know. I think I've only experienced temperatures this cold maybe two other times in my whole life. So I was thinking, you know, what, why, am I, why am I doing this? Why aren't I just staying in some nice place with my family and reading Prabhupada's books? Because without this knowledge, nobody can be happy. And we have to focus on that. I mean, how, how are we going to go on in our Hare Krishna movement preaching unless we really focus on how much people are suffering, thinking all there is is atoms? It's such a depressing philosophy. It's really horrible. And people being so depressed, they, they get involved in so much sinful and, and even materially criminal activity in their efforts to be happy and they're destroying society. There's, there's no more family in society anymore. Why should anybody keep a family? You know, there's no meaning to life anymore for most people. We were reading that in Radhadesh that the definition of secularization is that you lose the ability to see the world through the lens of religion and your life loses its meaning. And, and it's very unfortunate. So on that level, that was the level I was focusing on, the level of compassion 
and impetus and energy for, as far as practical application for preaching, that we should care, that we should you know, be willing to spend our time and our energy and our money and go through austerities and go through trouble in order to help people. You know, we who are chanting Hare Krishna, we, we may have forgotten how miserable it is not to have any meaning in life and to think that all there is is atoms. You know, we may have, we may have lost the sense of, of what kind of a deep existential emptiness there is in most people. They just don't know, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? They don't even know to ask those questions. You know, their, their lives are just... They're like a cardboard painting. There's no substance to it. There's no taste in it. It's very unfortunate. And this materialistic propaganda is being made by persons just so they can get money. You know, and then they have empty lives also. Even those who are, who are preaching these things to exploit others, what do they have in their life? And another level of application, which I didn't get into, is for ourselves. First of all, jnana brings detachment. So there's a tendency in this world to get attached to things. We get attached to our body. I mean, after all, we've invested a lot in our body. We've put a lot of food into it. We've you know, kept it clean. We've kept it healthy. We've kept it warm or kept it cool. We've given it a nice place to sleep. You know, we've really put a lot into it. And it's a, it's a big investment. It's probably one of the biggest investments we've made is into our body. And what to speak of into our mind, you know, we've read so many things... Uh, we've developed so many relationships with people and we've achieved some sort of position in a community and all those things are relation to our body and mind. We work really hard to create that and to maintain it. It's not a small thing to do that. And so we have an attachment to this body and mind. We're very attached. Who wants to lose something you've invested, you know? Like if you made this table, if you actually cut the wood and you carved it and you sanded and you painted it and you hammered it together... You wouldn't want to then just throw it out. You know, after you made all that investment to it, you want to keep it and you want to use it for some purpose. So we tend to get very attached to this body and this mind. Therefore, we fear death. We fear death, we fear sickness, we fear injury, we fear defamation, we feel, fear a break in our relationships. But by reading these verses, we realize that this all nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's just completely illusory. It's eight billionths of a second that the only reason to invest anything in this body and this mind is to achieve enlightenment, to achieve bhakti. Otherwise, there's no... Why invest in something that lasts for eight billionths of a second and get attached to it? What is the point? Just like I'm staying here in this room for three days, you know, and there's so many things. If I was going to live in that room, that I would do. The first thing I'd do is I'd get a desk. You know? So, but because I'm only here for three days... I don't, I'm not so concerned. I thought, okay, let me make some just little temporary arrangement and tolerate it. So getting this gyan, one becomes very tolerant and one's very detached. It doesn't really matter if the walls of my room are blue or green, if this person likes me or doesn't like me, if it's cold, if it's hot, if I have something nice to eat, if I don't have something nice to eat, whatever. It's, it, doesn't, it has nothing to do with me. It's a... It's a, it's a form I'm passing through and a life I'm passing through like that. Like when Maharaj son died and he came back and he said, oh, in what lifetime were these people my mother and father? And he had just left that body. Just left, and even just after leaving that body. Oh, in what lifetime were these people my mother and father? Amazing. 
You read about people who temporarily leave their body during some surgery or something like that. And, and often they'll, they'll look at their body and say, oh, look at that, that person lying on the bed there. He looks kind of sick. Poor guy. Oh my goodness, it's my body. <laughs> you know, they get, they get immediately a sense of detachment. And without this detachment, Krishna consciousness is really impossible. And what does Krishna say? Bhogaishwarya, those who are attached to this Bhogaishwarya, they can't become determined in Krishna consciousness. We have to become detached from matter. And the other thing we can use for ourselves is to always see the Krishnas behind everything. You know, we go through life kind of mindlessly. Oh, here's a nice clean temple room. Oh, that's nice. But somebody cleaned it, somebody's watering the pots. Somebody's changing the light bulbs. Somebody's cleaning the glass. Even the glass windows are pretty clean. Somebody's keeping everything in order. You know, I can just go through life thinking, oh, how can I enjoy it? How can I enjoy this temple room? How can I enjoy the chairs? How can I enjoy this? Without thinking about having a gratitude toward the people behind it. It's got to start with that. But it's not just Sarasvati said it. You don't want to end with gratitude because that's ultimately me-centered, but... At least start with that. And start with everything in our life, seeing who is the person behind it. So we can have a loving relationship with Krishna by meditating on how he's behind any of the things that we're using, even this temporary troublesome body. It's a pretty amazing body also. You know, it's self-healing. That's pretty incredible. Let the scientists create a self-healing machine. It's self-healing. It's replicating. And, and does all kinds of incredible things. I mean, some of them are perhaps annoying, how the hairs keep growing and the fingernails keep growing. But yeah. how, how does he do that? So those are the, th- the three applications that I can say. The main one I focused on today was for pre- having impetus for preaching, having a desire, caring, because it's a lot of trouble to preach. It's not... I mean, maybe, you know, if somebody provides you with all the facilities along the way. It's not so much trouble, but it's still it's a lot of trouble to maintain these centers, everything. We have to care. We have to care. And another is to have our own detachment, to make sure that, that we don't fall back into thinking that this world is so important. Do you see it happens with devotees even? Even if you're chanting Hare Krishna and reading Prabhupada's books, you can start thinking, you know, my relationships based on this body the activities of this body, the activities of this world, the possessions I have, they're really, really, really important. And that's where I'm going to put my hopes and my dreams and my aspirations. You know, I was just reading about uh, Dhritarashtra taking sannyas. Wow. On the train yesterday, I was reading that chapter. And Prabhupada says that one should just leave home without telling anybody. And go die someplace where nobody will know that you died and nobody will find your body. And I thought, wow, that's heavy. But that was the kind of detachment, you know? Just go. Many of us joined the Hare Krishna movement like that. We just left. Said goodbye. I'm going to dedicate myself to Krishna so to keep that spirit alive of, of detachment. Otherwise we suffer. And not just detachment because we don't want to be jnanis, but to see our beloved behind everything. Behind the chair, behind the sun, behind the 
air we're breathing. That there's there's Krishna. It's not it's not just an illusion. We're not simply be tra- trying to become detached from the illusion. We want to become attached to the reality. Is that helpful? Perfect. Okay. Did some thoughts you had? Not yet. Anything else? Yeah, another question. I'm sometimes thinking we try to convince people mm. about Krishna consciousness, about presence of the soul, and I often feel to, uh, to try to convince them on an intellectual level do not really bring much... I mean, this is my perspective, and mm. I would like to hear from you how, how to mm. counteract this perspective, because I always feel that our example of being loving persons and our example of compassion, and this is really what can move the, the, the people and can actually uh, convince them. And I'm sometimes a little skeptical that, that this knowledge and arguments can transform people and, mm. and change their hearts. So how, how will you... Oh, I, have, I have a few different thoughts on that. <coughs> I'm reminded of something that Ravindra Sruprabhu said once in his class that he was, uh, Tamal Krishnamaras and Vishnu Jan Swami were there doing their festival program. And what they would do, they would go to a park, usually near a college campus, and Vishnu Janan would lead a kirtan, and he had a beautiful voice, and he led with much feeling. And after the kirtan, they'd give a little talk, maybe Tamal Krishnamaras would speak a little on the philosophy, and then they'd pass out really delicious prasadam. Then Samakrishna Maharaj had told Ravindra he said, I go around the people and I say to them, you like the music? You like the food? And if they said, yeah, great stuff, then I would preach to them. And if they said, yeah, it's okay, I'd leave them alone. He said, because that way I could tell who had the sukriti, who had the fertile field. So Ravindra was skeptical and he decided he would test it. So he went around asking people, you know, what do you think of the music? you like the music, like the food? And one guy said, yeah, it's okay. So Ravindra Prabhu sat down and talked to him. And if you know Ravindra Prabhu, he's Mr. Philosophical Knowledge. If anybody could convince anybody through intellectual can, it would be Ravindra Prabhu. And he, what he, he said he spent an hour with this one boy. And at the, then the young man kept agreeing with his points but wasn't interested in surrender. I had a, simple, a similar example with my mother. I remember once really speaking to my mother in terms of logic and philosophy, and my mother would always, always argue even on these basic points, and at one point she said, yeah, you're right. When someone dies, the body's there, but they're not there. The person's not there. I said, yes, so we're different from the body. No, I don't believe that, she said. So I thought it was really interesting that even though she had admitted it logically, she wouldn't take the next step. What to speak of surrendering to Krishna? I mean, she sort of did that in her last week of life. But So I would agree with you that people are not convinced by intellectual arguments alone. However, I'd also say that there are different kinds of people. And each of us have our particular attachment. There's one devotee who's a counselor in a hospice. I think he has a, or he has a master's or PhD in psychology. And he's done a lot of work with personality styles. 
he's taken a very famous system called Myers-Briggs and he's sort of added to it and developed his own understanding. He puts people into four quadrants, which he said correspond to like karma, jnana, yoga, and bhakti as far as a person's inclinations. How do we see the world? So I do see that people will come in different ways. Some people will, will be more attracted to Krishna consciousness by doing things that are enjoyable. Some people really, they're already on the platform of, of having some loving attachment to God. Some people are going to be attracted to the aspects of, of yoga. And some are going to be attracted to philosophy. So it depends who you are. You know, it, it's... We talk, Rupa Goswami talks about different levels of adhikar for taking up Vaidhi Bhakti. I mean, he talks about it in terms of faith in the Shastra. But I would say that different people have different, not only degrees of adhikar, but different kinds of adhikar. It depends on our particular background. Our background in this life, our background in other lives, what we're attached to. And you, you see that as people develop in Krishna consciousness also, that they're they go to different, there's different, there are different tastes. Like Prabhupada talks about in after devotion that one should perform according to one taste. And we have different tastes. So, I mean, what convinced me about Krishna consciousness was the philosophy. But you can't say that it was, I, I mean, I wasn't actually convinced by the devotees. Ravinda Superbhu says this about himself too. He said he joined in spite of the devotees, not because of them. And I had the same experience. I wouldn't say the devotees were particularly nice or warm or loving with me. In fact, when I came, I was very challenging. And, and later when I moved back in the temple, some of the devotees said, oh, we didn't think you would ever join. You were so challenging. You know, but what two things convinced me. One was the philosophy, and the other was uh, the, a life where you could be spiritual all the time. I didn't want to do just a 15-minute morning meditation. I wanted a full, a full process. But I wouldn't say it was the relationships that attracted me at all. Mm-hmm. And I've met, I've met other people who were just the opposite. So I, I, I mean, obviously, just logic and philosophy, as I said in the beginning, it, that's not going to do it for anybody. The person, ha- they have to have, there has to be fertile field. It, it, I see it much more as that the field has to be fertile. Whether Brahma said both. The seed has to be potent and the field has to be fertile. So if people don't have, if there's no fertility in their field, then all you can do is start putting in fertilizer to the field before you can plant a seed. And then we do that. You know, are going out on Harinam, are distributing books, are distributing prasadam. For many people, all we're doing is fertilizing their field. We're, we're creating a receptive ground with a gatta sukriti. There was this lady on the train yesterday. Oh my God, Krishna. I mean, first the train, the second train we were on, they made an announcement, not in English, that things were delayed and we were going to miss our connecting train. And thankfully there was this lady, she must have been somewhere in her 60s or 70s, German lady, who helped us out. She translated the things on the, the announcements on the train. She was going also to Munich, so she took us you know, at the train station, she showed us where to go and what to do, and she just stayed with us until we came to Munich. And if she hadn't been with us, I, I don't think we would have made it. So we were, stayed a little while at the train station in Mannheim, between trains, and we were talking to her. She said, oh, well, pretty soon I'm going to be going to Nepal and India. I'm going to go to Varnasi and Hardwar. Just an ordinary German lady, you know. 
I said, oh, my daughter lives in India. She lives near Vrindavan. And this lady said, oh, I've been to Vrindavan. So I was sort of shocked. I thought, what are the chances of finding in the same car of the same train somebody who's going where we're going and who helps us out? We had two trains to two mess-ups yesterday and who helps us out and does all this service for us and who's already been to Vrindavan. I was just astonished. It's like, wow. So what Krishna does is he gives people the Sukriti. You know, this lady's not a devotee, but I'm sure she's going to become one. If not in this life, in another life. So Krishna's building up that Sukriti. So that's part of it. That's part of it for the person. That sometimes you'll make just a logical argument. You'll just say, look, there's a person who made the table, so there's a God behind creation. And someone goes, yes, that's right. And another person, you say that, and they're like, well, I don't know if I believe that. And then the other side is that we have to be potent. So being potent doesn't just mean knowing some philosophy in a dry way. It also means that we're living the philosophy, and if we're living the philosophy then naturally we'd be loving, caring people. I know that's kind of a shock to some people, but you know we have some people who think if I'm living the philosophy, I'm going to be a you know, self-righteous, arrogant, hit you over the head with a stick kind of person. So I'd say both have to be there. And if you're living the philosophy, and if the other person is receptive, then even giving them just logic and philosophy may convince them. And if that, especially if that person is a philosophically inclined mm-hmm. person. So you're looking at, at several things. Does the person have the sukriti? Do they have the adhikar? If they don't have the adhikar, then I try to build the adhikar. And how I build the adhikar depends also on that person and what they're receptive to and what they're willing to take. Then I have to look at what kind of person I'm dealing with. Is it a person who's going to, you know, what attracts them? Different people are attracted to different things. I mean, I know a lot of devotees who just came because of the prasadam. And I like the prasadam, but that wasn't why I came to Krishna consciousness. So there's, you know, what, what's going to enliven that person? And then, of course, yes, we've got to be authentic. I, I, and I see there's several reasons why we have to be authentic. But one that I'll mention now is that why would I do something if it doesn't work for the person who's selling it? You know, if I try to tell you to to buy a, a Mercedes, but you know, I drive a Ford, it's, it's not going to you're not going to be convinced. I I have to not only do I have to be practicing Krishna consciousness externally, but it has to be changing my heart and my character. I have to be getting some realization and some taste from it. Otherwise, you know, maybe I can make a show for a little while. I could take some acting lessons and learn how to act enthused, but people will sense a phony. Is that yeah. all right? Very nice. Okay. Anything else? Thank you very much. Thank you. All glory to